So, uh, our beloved brother, John Gray, uh, with the help of his trusty friend, Daniel Williams, has, have been talking to us about the book of Romans for a while. And so I just wanted to stay in that theme, so we're going to try to accomplish two things that I'm hoping unfold together well enough. I, I kind of wanted to honor the fact that uh, I, I don't know how many people you know that can actually say, I heard the gospel at this time or day, and I received Christ at this time or day, and everything changed. Uh, especially if you grow up in a Christian family, that's likely to have been a process in your life. But, uh, you know, I, I can say uh, that in 1974, from February to August, God brought me to Christ. But I can't, uh, and I can point to certain events in the journey that were quite formative or whatever, but I can't actually uh, point to uh, this person shared the gospel, I said yes, and that was the, the birth. And, uh, but for all of us, uh, if you're in Christ, you, conversion, becoming a Christian, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, unfortunately a lot of Christians call it being saved, which is misleading because the truth of the matter is God foreknows and predestines everything. So Daniel Williams was saved from all eternity. And uh, then uh, God is working through an historical process. So there were various events along the way that began to bring your salvation to you. And so you have been saved, and you are saved, and you are being saved, and you will be saved. Uh, so if someone says, uh, when did you get saved? They actually, they actually are speaking nonsense, but they don't know it. And so what you need to do is you don't need to graciously say, that's nonsense. <laughs> just, what, just translate. What they're saying is, when did you become a Christian? Okay, so in becoming a Christian, there are two distinct things that happen. And like in biblical math, uh, God is one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In uh, the ontological trinity, one plus one plus one equals one. Now, Golda, if you uh, put that on um, uh, a math paper for Mr. Brown, you might not get the answer. Uh, you, you might get that uh, some red lines through that one. One plus one plus one equals one. And when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, he is 100% Fully deity. He always is, always was, always will be. One of the earliest church cults that challenged the church were called the Arians. And they're one of my wife's favorite ones to study because uh, when we did, uh, she actually did, a, I heard her do a presentation on the Arians. And the Arians used to go around various cities where Christianity was growing and they used to actually chant. There was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. Because they're saying Jesus is not deity. He's not eternal. 
But a, a basic idea of the Christian life is Jesus is eternity, is, is eternal, he is deity. And there never was, so he's the eternally begotten son of God. Try to think on that, try to, if you get that one figured out, see me at lunchtime and explain it to me. Um, you know, he's the eternally begotten, eternally begotten son of God. So, you know, biblical math. Um, So anyway, since, uh, since everyone's been doing our uh, series on Romans, th- we are coming up, this coming Saturday will actually be the 50th anniversary of when Catherine Weiss, her, who was Catherine Fickthorne at the time, people used to call her Kathy, in fact, you'll hear a little video, uh, or a little uh, audio thing I asked uh, somebody to send here in a minute, and he calls her Kathy, because uh, uh, people who knew her back then, still, some of them still call her Kathy. And um, I'm going to have Kathy share my tes- or her testimony with us in just a minute, who I know is Catherine. Um, but after we hear a little bit about takeaway number one. So what I'm, to be clear, what I'm not trying to do today is give us some overview of Romans or a survey of Romans or anything that would take away from what John Gray and Daniel have been doing um, it's nice to have an outline or it might be nice to put some kind of organizational scheme on it. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to um, tell you here are three points that are not just uh, my, some of my favorites, but these are things that I'm sensing lately from the Holy Spirit that we at Grace Christian Fellowship probably need to make sure we're better founded in in um, that we are in remembrance of. I've always loved the one particular point about Second Peter. Second Peter has uh, not as lofty vocabulary in Greek as First Peter, because First Peter was written with the help of Sylvanus. Second Peter uh, was not. But in Second Peter, Peter has been. The Lord has let him know that his departure from this life, that his going to be with the Lord, is going to be very soon. And he has said, uh-oh, what are the most, I need to, I'm going to write a letter to all the believers saying, don't forget these things. And so he three times talks about, in, in a short epistle of three chapters, talks about, I'm saying these things so that you can always remember them. We like to hear new stuff in American Christianity today, but um, it would be, um, biblically, one of the most important things that's emphasized over and over and over is the importance of remembering. So, um, sorry. Getting distracted a little bit. Um, so, um, you know, the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. If you remember when Jacob was f- fleeing from, I, I don't know if you say it, Laban or Laban, or uh, he's fl- fleeing from his uncle. Uh, you know, they, they put these stones as stones of remembrance. And all through the Bible things are done that 
that are basically done so we won't forget. So I always say, learn to read the law of the reverse negative. The reason we, there's so many things in the Bible that are done so that we can remember is because we don't remember. <laughs> we, we forget. In fact, uh, I'd be a rich man if you could just give me like $5 for every time my wife has said something to me and I said, oh, I don't remember when you said that. <laughs> That's why she has gray hair. Um, so, um, these are more things that I, I would encourage you to make sure that you're very well founded in these. These are part of how you think. They're part of how you're motivated. They're part of how you approach life and you approach God. And they're everyday practical realities to you. Okay? So is that clear? So the first one is this. Declare, which is also said herald, proclaim, preach. That all, those are the Greek word for proclaim. Could be translated any of these things. Announce is another word that it could be translated. Announce the gospel intentionally to all manner of people and people groups. You know, I actually know Christians. Uh, really, this is actually true. You're probably not going to believe me. But I know Christians that have never shared the gospel with people that have seldom led someone to the Lord, that have se seldom said, can I tell you about Jesus Christ and what he did for us, or something like that. But I, I'm uh, 64 years old. I'll be 65 in December. Um, before I was a Christian, I, you might say I had a lust for adventure. You know, I broke 100 miles an hour in rush hour traffic many times <laughs> and, and did all sorts of wild things, took all sorts of different chemicals and substances, uh, and had many types of adventures. I did cliff diving and what, what have you. And um, I, I, I can honestly say this. I don't know anything in this world that rivals helping someone come to Christ, get established in Christ, and become a lifelong disciple of Christ. That is the ultimate joy, the ultimate blessing. That is a privilege that you become uh, increasingly aware of. I'm on sacred ground, and I don't deserve this kind of blessing why did God choose a sinful person like me? And when you watch God, uh, you know, someone gets spiritually conceived, you might say the word of God is seed beginning to be implanted in their spirit. And you watch them starting to be quickened uh, to life, that their spirit becomes reborn that they start sensing the Holy Spirit in various ways. I just looked up and I'll, so I'll pick on Michael Hoff because I just saw him. I remember Michael Hoff sharing with me uh, one time about he was going to go to bed and the Lord, you know, kind of tapped on his shoulder or whatever. The Lord kind of 
gave him some thoughts. And the thought, thoughts included things like, I shouldn't go to bed without spending some time with the Lord. Is that, that about correct, Mike? And, uh, you know, like I should read the word, I should seek the Lord. And, and, and in the course of that, he ended up getting baptized in the Spirit that night, right? And he ended up, uh, Jesse had already gone to bed, and he woke her up. And, uh, but that's one worth waking up. You know, there was, it's not just like I, you know where the antacids are. You had too much pepperoni. But, uh, you know, uh, and they ended up going for a ride and, and, and worshiping and enjoying the Lord, right? So there's, uh, there's nothing like that. Um, this is a guy who God had called. He'd been filled with the Spirit, but God was giving him a greater measure of the Spirit and uh, coming into his life. And see, the, the things God does in his grace like this there's a part of them that uh, the grace is um, ongoing. There's a residual deposit that you keep. Now, we need to continue to cultivate and be filled and refilled. and uh, We really need to be refilled about as much as we need to refuel in, in, in eating food and drink. We need re- refilled all the time. But yet, uh, if you fast for a few days, you don't go away like you never had any food, <laughs> right? So, and it's the same thing with God. God's gracious deposits that build us in Christ, there's an ongoing residual that is wonderful. There's kind of a permanent change that grace brings about. Now, all of this is just to say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone. And now the, the scripture says, who believes, I'm quoting from Romans 1, 16 and 17, which are uh, verses in the Romans that are kind of, um, you know, like Paul's, you, you kind of, if you analyze Paul's writings, I'm going to have to jump into takeaway two if I go here, but it's probably all right. Uh, when you analyze Paul's writings, there's a salutation, and then he tells you eternal spiritual theological truths. He tells you what he calls milk, and milk be- builds bones in the analogy of us being little bodies of Christ. And milk, and milk be- that is theology, biblical theology, is thinking correctly about God and his word and so forth, knowing his word, is the framework that our Christian life is built on. If you had some rare genetic thing where you, you didn't form bones, you'd be like a blob. <laughs> Just skin and muscle and fat in a pile. So, but Paul always gives you, and he does this in Romans, so this is takeaway two, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, Takeaway two, it it could be one, really, but it could have gone with this first. Many of Paul's epistles follow this framework. Uh, He tells the Corinthians this. He tells them because of such and such problems, they need milk and not solid food. And milk builds the structure of our lives. So the milk of God's word is the theological principles that if they become real to you, and if, you, if God grants you faith, 
when it says to everyone who believes in Romans 1, 16 and 17? Guess who believes? Almost all Christians have some idea of pride about their believing. But guess what? You have a sin nature that refused to believe. And if you're in Christ, it's because he graciously chose to overcome that and grant you the, the willingness and the ability to believe. I've always said it's much like if, uh, if you were in a classroom and I could, I could go by and yell, get out, get out, get out. And you would just sit up there and look at me like, what a weirdo. What's... But I could also, let's say I had a shop back with a, a function that blows back out. And I put an angry hornet's nest in there and began to blow them into the room. And then I said, get out, get out, get out. You'd probably get out. You'd probably get out pretty quick. Now, I didn't make you get out in either case. But I made you willing to get out. (laughs) And that's really how God's saving grace works. God sometimes uses the fear of God. There really is a heaven and hell. Early this morning, I was thinking about when I, February 1974, when my spirit began to leave my body and, go, and descend into hell. And for a period of several months, and, and even on into maybe up to 10 years, I had that experience quite often and often couldn't stop it. And, you know, Derek Prince was one of many Christians who helped me overcome that, learn how to cast the demons out and keep them out and all that. But, you know, something 40 years later I can never shake off. Hell is real. That's all there is to it. Hell is a very real thing. Jesus talks more about hell than any other figure in the Bible. And it's actually an emphasis with him. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the reality. The life. He's, when I, whenever I see truth, I always change it to reality. Because we tend to get word hardened, and a word doesn't impact it. Like, this, not thinking this way, is a fantasy world of illusion that most people are lost in. And understanding thoroughly and so that it shapes your wishes, your desires, your choices, how you, what you're all about, the, God's word, it, that's reality. And what salvation is, is, is partly a rescue from an unreality that people are, st- are lost in. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jews first, the Greeks. The word power is the word dunamis. A lot of you know that. They, God, power of God, theos. Remember, Paul is a Hebrew. Uh, so when he's saying the power of God, he's talking about a personal, eternal absolutely other transcendent imminent personal spiritual being 
He's not talking about the gods of little demonic things like Pokemon or something. So, or little Greek gods or whatever, gods that are no gods at all. In salvation, soteria is a word with such far-reaching consequences in the present and the future that is way beyond my ability to define. It includes deliverance, preservation, safety, salvation, wholeness, rescue from the molestation of enemies. I'm going to hopefully get far enough today to end with talking about being rescued from the molestation of enemies. One thing that breaks my heart as a pastor is sometimes you see Christians who really, uh, God comes into their life, they get baptized in the Spirit, and it's just obvious that there's a countenance of the Holy Spirit around them, and they're just making progress in leaps and bounds. And it's such a joy to see. And then sometimes you see other people who are kind of stuck. And uh, there's no sense of life about their spirit. Um, they have the same emotional problems they had before, uh, or the same bitterness that they had before, the same bad self-image uh, issues that they had before. And you just cry out, like, what could I do to help them have a breakthrough and get it? Because the, the power of God is salvation. Salvation is something when it comes into your life, you'll know. Salvation is not just about heaven. It's past, present, future. Salvation is being made whole. It's becoming an entirely new creation. I love when it says of Saul, 2 Kings 10, is it? Where, you know, Samuel tells him that he's going to encounter a group of prophets. He's going to get the spirit and he's going to be changed into a different man. When biblical salvation hits you, you are you are can clearly say I'm a different person. I don't have the same old same old issues that I had before. Emotionally, relationally, you name it. Like when someone is really sort of basking in salvation and the grace of God is growing in their life and the power of God is growing in their life. They know it, and you know it. And that's all brought about by a thing called the gospel. That come comes about by the Holy Spirit anointing as you feed on God's word. And it becoming flesh in your life. And it starts with someone speaking it out loud to you. You hear it. So salvation frees the soul to safety. It brings contentment, fearlessness, a sense of well-being presently. It's a gift. You know it's a gift. You at times wrestle with, like, why did God choose me? In 1963, I know a lot of you weren't born then. Roseanne, were you born by 63? 
<laughs> she was getting about to be born. Uh, but uh, Catherine and I were both here. <laughs> Uh, my family had moved from a little suburb of Columbus called Upper Arlington to a suburb of Cleveland called Brexville. And I had been there one or two days, I think a day or so, and I was playing football in the backyard with my new friend Jim and his father. And this third grade boy who looks like, because I was a third grade boy, who looked about my age, turned out he was a year and two weeks older than me, came to join us and sat down on the hill. And I still remember to this day meeting him and beginning to build the friendship that was probably the best friend I ever had for many years. And I remember when God sovereignly opened my eyes to the gospel in 1974, I remember um, trying desperately to share the gospel with him many times. And in God's providence, he wasn't interested. I remember uh, the phone ringing. in my apartment with two Christian brothers I was living in. I was in grad school and I was leading the Fellowship of Christian Students. We were in the midst of a big outpouring of God's Spirit and lots of people were coming to Christ all the time. I could minister as much every day as I could stay awake in fruitful ways. And it was my brother Mike who proceeded to tell me that this best friend that I was talking about, his name was Danny, had just been killed. And he died outside of Christ. In fact, he had gotten married uh, about a year earlier, and he had kind of descended into some immoral issues and areas that I wrongly didn't go to the wedding. Uh, Because he had stolen our other friend's wife and kids. And I was a little ticked at him about it, and so I didn't go to the wedding. But I realized, of course, later that I should have gone to the wedding and I should have kept the friendship open. I should have just said, I don't appreciate what you did to our other friend Mike and so forth. But nevertheless, uh, that was what happened. And I can remember my poor wife having to put up with for 10 years. After we were married in 1982, a year later, that I would have a dream. And in my dream, we, Danny and I would be shooting hoops in the driveway or we'd be sledding in the woods, all the kinds of things we did all the time in our neighborhood, playing football, wiffle ball. We had great wiffle ball games. And, uh, uh, and in the dream, I would always get to a point where I'd say, wait a minute, Danny's not dead. Uh, we're playing wiffle ball. <laughs> you know? And then I'd realize, oh, this is a dream because he is dead. And he perished. And then Catherine would wake up to the sound of me weeping. 
because we were bonded in a way like a Jonathan and David, yet he didn't come to Christ. In, in God's providence, I, all this happened right at the time we were starting to go door to door and share the gospel. And Catherine was, uh, had just joined the team, and she was, was by far the most fruitful person in going to the door to door and sharing the gospel. And God was using this to kind of confirm to me, as far as it is possible in our lives, we need to make sure that the people around us don't, don't go to, uh, into eternity without our at least trying to have helped them hear the truth and know the truth. And there are things you can do. You can't take the offense out of it like the modern uh, seeker-sensitive kind of thing tries to do. There's very difficult things in, in he hearing the word of Christ and so forth. But on the other hand, you don't have to... Some, some Christians are unnecessarily obnoxious, unnecessarily condemning. And the, you know, um, Proverbs says the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. You can learn a wisdom that you're not compromising the truth, but you're helping people see the advantages thereof. So anyway, we could read all these verses. The Romans 2, 4 is one that you should memorize. <clears throat> It talks about how the riches of his kindness and their strength and patience, not knowing the kindness of God, leads you to repentance. Do you know that God grants repentance? And you don't know who he's going to. Let me make this very clear. And you should, you should think, and I'm talking, these are so important. Like, if this is not part of how you think every day, you're, that's wrong. You need to think about these kind of things every day. It's the kindness of God that grants repentance. I have, I remember working with John Bradbury. I have had many times where I began, was sharing the gospel with someone and meeting with them and doing Bible studies where I knew they were being drawn into the kingdom. I knew how to go about drawing them into the kingdom. I was, a, you know, a part, God had granted us by his grace to be a partner with him in what he was doing in John Bradbury's life, right? Jason Hale was like that for me, for example. And, but listen carefully, I have never once in 47 years of sharing the gospel I have never once had someone that God showed me, this person's not being drawn, don't try with this person. I have had many times where God showed me, oh, I, I had faith to know this person is being drawn into the kingdom and this is how to go about helping them and it's exciting and it's, it's a privilege to be part of what God's doing in their life. And, and, you know, I can remember one particular time I had Bradbury over for breakfast. Poor guy, I just cooked him toast and scrambled eggs. I think that was the whole breakfast. But, uh, but, but uh, <laughs> no pancakes, none of it. I don't even think there were sausage links or anything. I don't know why he came. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's because he got off work at 6 a.m. and I didn't feel like driving all the way up to Miller Lane for Bob Evans that, that Monday or whatever morning it was. But um, 
And I can remember God showing me some supernaturally, some answers to John Bradbury's questions that I had never thought of before. It's wonderful to be a part of that when God's doing those things. But I have never had God say, don't bother with that person. You know, sometimes I'll get people ask me, should I continue to reach out to this person? Should I give up on them? I don't know. Here's I, all I know what I, I do, so you can see if this works for you. I never give up on anybody. And the, I only stop sharing with them when they walk away from us and they're not coming anymore and they don't want to talk anymore. In other words, they shut the door. I never do. Never. I remember sharing one time with a, a pastor who used to pastor John Gray. And I was asking what had happened because the relationship hadn't worked and it hadn't helped John grow. And, and I could tell the, the man had sort of gotten to the point of disappointment. He'd kind of given up on John Gray. And I asked him, like... So what happened? Did you, like, when you asked John to read this and that and he didn't read it and so forth, did you give up on him? And he actually said, yeah, I, I gave up on him. And I remember that I had to turn my head and walk away and couldn't respond to him because I was weeping. I remember before God just going, I will never give up on John Gray. Never. So whether this is right or wrong, when you're praying for people, when you're sharing the gospel with them, don't give up on them. Uh, God will take them out of your life if it's not going to be fruitful. You, now don't compromise with them. Don't think I'm going to win them by going and living in sin with them or, or you know, well, I got drunk with them because, you know, that's what you like. You know, keep your testimony. Keep, keep your integrity. It's usually a sign that God's drawing them if they, get on, if they want to be on our turf. You'll know God's drawing them because they'll want to come to church. They'll start reading their Bible. I remember John Bradbury, not to pick on him so, too much today, but I gave him, uh, the first day we talked, I gave him a little book called uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. That was on Sunday morning. Logan had brought him to church. And John was quite hungover <laughs> that particular Sunday. And uh, he wasn't feeling very well. But, um, but we had breakfast on Thursday morning. That's four days later. And he had read the book and had really good thoughts about it. He actually very clearly said, this did not help, was not enough evidence for me to become a Christian, but it's the first time I actually thought about that there are real and true arguments for Christianity that one can study and think about and debate, and that, that, that it's not just something emotional and, and hokey, but it's something that, that is real arguments for or against, and I'm going to do more with that. And so I gave him The Reason for God by Tim Keller, and he read that book in two or three weeks. But, you know, God had, like, when God's drawing someone, you'll see signs like that. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm all cry today. Imagine that. So in 1971, my wife was 15, and uh, 
church. He was pretty lost. If this is where you were supposed to be found, she didn't know this existed, let alone start walking toward it. And so, and then God intervened, and she's going to come share a little bit about that. You have to use that mic. Um, so, yeah, I was a pretty lost 15-year-old. And I met a guy. I had bumped into this guy at some different places prior to the experience that I had in October of 1971. <laughs> Bowling Green State University campus. <laughs> well, rock concerts at Bowling Green State <laughs> University. <laughs> My dad was a professor at BGSU, and um, I could use the library over there. I had a library card, and I liked the campus. It was, it was a nice place to go. <clears throat> and um, exciting things were happening, because, you know, the hippies were around and all that stuff. And uh, I wanted to be a hippie. <laughs> I thought it was cool. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I had met, I had run into this guy, uh, his name is Joseph McAuliffe. Um, I'd run into him a few times at some different rock concerts and things, and it was pretty clear that, you know, I just, I would start talking to him, and he was under the influence of various drugs. And um, then some time went by, and I didn't see him for a long time. And then one day, I walked into the student union at BGSU. Um, at that time, the student union had this really nice cafeteria, and lots of students would go and buy food and hang out in the cafeteria in the student union. And um, so I saw him there, and he looked very different. I know now he was in his right mind. He was not under the influence of any, any type of drug or anything. And he had this big book tucked under his arm. And of course, you know, on a university, you would expect people to be carrying books around. You know, it's 1971. The internet hasn't been invented. <laughs> no, nobody has a smartphone. You know, none of those. I know it's hard for you guys to imagine a world like that. <laughs> But that's how it was. People carried actual physical books. He had this large book under his arm, um, and but it didn't look like a textbook. And I was I was like, Hey, how's it going? You look good. How, things going good for you and everything. And and he um, stopped to talk with me more than just hello, how are you? Good to see you. Um, and so we sat down at a table in the student union. And he had become a Christian. I didn't really know much about that, um, although I had been to church uh, with my parents and different things like that. And actually, prior to that experience, God had been working in my life to prepare me for that moment. So we sat down, and he shared a very simple uh, presentation of the gospel. And at the end, he, he probably spoke with me for about 20 minutes. And 
the interesting thing is I had never heard the gospel that clearly and concisely presented before. And uh, again, this is a world where, you know, uh, um, you know, big church ministries didn't exist at that time. Um, there weren't a lot of people that were doing evangelism much. Um, that would come a little later. Um, so, uh, you know, this was a, a brand new thing for me to hear the gospel. And essentially, he shared with me the, um, the points that Greg has laid out. Greg has a message called Seven Exchanges Made at the Cross. And if you want, you know, if you haven't heard that message or you, you want to go back and re-listen to it, I would really encourage you to do so. Seven exchanges made at the cross. And that's essentially what uh, Joseph shared with me. And all of a sudden I realized, God did this for me. This isn't just some abstract idea. Uh, this is... it. it it became super personal. At the end of him sharing with me, I knew that Jesus had died for my sins and that if I asked him to come into my life and if I would give my life to him, he would come and live in my heart and I would have a new life in Christ. And so when Joseph concluded what he was saying, he said, would you like to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? And I said, of course, yes, let's pray. And so he led me in a very simple prayer. And at the end, I truly had an experience that I can only describe as coming out of death and into life. Just this blackness, this darkness of being lost was completely gone. And I knew that God had found me, not that I had found him, but he had found me, and I was his forever. I think it's important for you to share a little bit about your experience with confirmation in the Episcopal Church and uh, your disappointment. There. Okay. So um, my parents were Episcopal. Okay. Also, a little bit of whatever you could appropriately say about your family situation. Um, my family situation was pretty difficult. Um, my father was an alcoholic, a high-functioning alcoholic, but an alcoholic addicted to alcohol. Um, and my mother had some pretty serious mental health issues. She was often hospitalized for those. Um, so things were very difficult and they were really only getting worse as time went on. Uh, so by the time that I asked Christ to come into my life, I was truly desperate. I, was, I had nowhere else to turn. Um, and my parents were, uh, uh, ironically, uh, faithful churchgoers. Uh, we attended an Episcopalian church in Bowling Green and um, I have to say that there was much that, although there were some things that weren't so great, there was much that was good in that, um, you know, despite the fact that my parents did not really know Christ, in, it seemed, um, and it didn't seem as though the pastor really knew the Lord. 
Nonetheless, um, there were good things that God began to do in my heart through that church. Um, when I was younger, I looked forward very much to being confirmed in the church because once I had gone through the catechism classes and I had been confirmed at the age of 12, then I could take communion with the grown-ups. So I was really looking forward to that. You know, by the time I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11, you know, it, it, it was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be able to do that. I'll go through the catechism, I'll be confirmed, and then I'll be able to take communion, and that'll be awesome. And um, so when I was 12, of course, I went to the catechism classes. And unfortunately, the gospel was not presented in that setting. Um, honestly, when I think back about it, I remember very little. I, I honestly don't know what they were trying to convey. Um, but, uh, you know, I went through the classes um, and I had, I had, I was told there's a series of questions and answers. You need to memorize those because there will be a church service and the bishop will come and he will lay hands on you and he may, you know, ask you some of the questions. So you should be prepared with the answers. And, uh, you know, they also explained, this is the one thing I did remember. They explained that going through confirmation was a, a way, the church's way of helping people come from salvation into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the bishop would come, he would lay hands on the children who were presented for confirmation, and at least in my head, I thought, the Holy Spirit will come and I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that got me excited. That seemed awesome. Um, also, attending the church, you know, there was scripture that was imparted. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of understanding of a lot of scriptures, but there were certain passages in the Bible that really caught my imagination. And uh, I especially remember from the Gospels the account of Jesus uh, going to John the Baptist, being water baptized. And then as he's coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit is descending. And God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So I looked, you know, I, in my mind, I conflated confirmation with kind of what happened with Jesus. I didn't really, hadn't really read much of the book of Acts. I didn't know about the Holy Spirit being poured out on the disciples and all that that implied. But I did, you know, I had some sense of who the Holy Spirit was, is, and what he does in the life of a believer. So I was really looking forward to confirmation. Um, unfortunately, the confirmation service was a big letdown for me. The bishop came halfway through the service. Um, he walked in, in the middle of the, <laughs> the services going on. He didn't even wait until a good time to slide in. He just walked down the center aisle of the church, walked up to, uh, you know, by the altar where we were kind of, you know, me and the other kids who were getting confirmed, kind of just stood there, said something. I don't remember what it was. He didn't ask us any questions. He didn't pray. He just said something. And then he walked back down the center aisle of the church and he was gone. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Church, you let me down. 
I was mad. I was upset. I didn't get the Holy Spirit. Now, they concluded the confirmation service, and after that, yes, I was allowed to take communion with the grown-ups. I was confirmed. But the experience, you know, definitely was not anything like what I had been hoping for. I do remember at that time, you know, I'm becoming disillusioned with the church. Um, but at the same time, I still wanted the Holy Spirit. I wanted to feel close to God. Now, I, looking back, I can say that was God doing a work in me. That was one of the preparation steps that later in 1971, when I prayed and asked him to come into my heart, that was something that prepared me for that moment. Um, so that, you know, praying to become a Christian didn't come out of the blue. I didn't go from knowing nothing about Christianity to praying and ask Jesus to come into my heart. Um, definitely my experience in the church had, you know, for good or ill, uh, affected me to the point that I really was ready to hear the gospel. So at the right time, just as the scripture says, at the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. So at the right time in my life, he sent a person to speak the gospel to me and to help lead me into that. So... But pay attention there to Romans 10. And this, I, the underlining is my emphasis. There's no, uh, whoever believes, how can they believe unless they hear? How can they preach? So takeaway number one, never forget the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who hears it and is granted the repentance and faith to, to believe and receive. Go proclaim the gospel, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Um, you know, we have prayer after church. Uh, I wonder sometimes if some Christians don't feel they've been sent. If you are in Christ, the gospels make it very clear that you have been sent to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And the word there, that doesn't mean like say, would you please, please uh, consider our thing? It means declare the truth. Herald. It, it, the, you know, proclaim it. And all I, you know, there's a verse I put in here from Acts 13 that is talking about a time when Paul and Barnabas were speaking boldly in a particular place. And then it says, uh, they were, the word of the Lord was being glorified, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. I, it, it pains me to, that there's such bad theology today. And of course, there's you know, the whole Calvinism versus antinomianism and you know, uh, all this. God foreknows, God predestines. If it wasn't that case, it wouldn't be fair. That's the only way it could be fair if you think it through well enough. And there are people in your life who are destined to hear the gospel, and they're destined to be granted repentance. They're destined to be 
pulled into the kingdom of God. And God knows who they are. But he doesn't tell us. We're actually to declare the message to everyone. And so if you're not active in sharing your faith, don't live a life that's unexamined. You know, remember Socrates from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? You know, Socrates said that uh, the life unexamined is not worth living. Don't step back from your Christian life and think about who you are, what you're doing, where you're going. If sharing the gospel is not a reality for you and something that you intentionally do and have plans to do, ask some older Christians to help you. Uh, now, for me, I knew I was going to share the gospel, so I took some steps like memorize lots of scriptures. I used to carry three-by-five note cards in my pocket that once I had Winston's or Marlboro's there, and now I had three-by-five note cards and because uh, I quit smoking when I became a Christian. For the first time, that is, I quit smoking the first time, then the second time, then eventually, I, then I quit altogether. Eventually, but uh, <laughs> um, but but I used to put my scripture cards in my pocket. I don't buy shirts that don't have pockets now because I have my Bible in there, this one. <laughs> and uh, back then, I didn't buy shirts that didn't have pockets because I kept my scripture cards in there. And I would say, like, the first five years I was a Christian, I probably memorized at least 3,000 scriptures. If you're not a scripture memorizer, change that. Believe me, the word of God is life. I, I'm, I'm trying to take away number one, is the word of God, the gospel, is power. The Greek word dunamis is used in a lot of contexts in the New Testament. One of them is the power that rose Jesus from the dead. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the resurrection is the most remarkable fact in the history of the world. Because this thing started happening when Adam and Eve died that no one has been able to stop it from happening. That is, people grew old and they died. And in, in the last 7,000 years, approximately 20 billion people have hoped that they wouldn't die. And they did. Because God promised the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they died surely spiritually that day, and the law of sin and death worked its way through their members till they died physically. And the gospel is, is about the reality that death couldn't hold our Lord Jesus. And if you've never read some of the books, there's, there's probably around 30, 40 good Christian books. You can go all the way to N.T. Wright's like 1,000-pager, or you can do little short ones like More Than a Carpenter. But there's lots of books that help you understand why the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be defended in a court of law. It's, uh, how, there's a... I have a master's degree in, in history, and I studied what's called historical methodology, and how do you do history, and how can you prove facts, and so forth. You know, for, for example, does anybody uh, not believe in this room that the U.S. had a president named George Washington? Has anybody met him? Right? But it's a fact, and it's an historically proven fact that's beyond a doubt. 
And if you would examine the evidence, the resurrection of Jesus is the most provable fact probably in human history. Hundreds of people could have saved their life if they just said, I didn't believe, I, I made that up about the resurrection. I don't really believe it. They were willing to get their heads chopped off, be fed to lions, be impaled on a stake and covered with tar and lit on fire rather than deny that they had seen Jesus resurrected. Hundreds. And it's very well documented and it's, it's a fact that's beyond, beyond question. And you should know the evidences for it. That's called evidential apologetics, by the way. Takeaway two, we already talked about this whole thing of, like Romans 1 through 11 is, is the milk. Romans 12 to 16 is the, is the meat. How do we live it? Ephesians 1 through 3 is the milk. Ephesians 4 through 6 is the meat. Colossians 1 and 2 is the milk. Colossians 3 and 4 is the meat. Notice that the first half of Paul's epistles tell you the, the um, they tell you orthodoxy. They tell you the theological framework. They tell you the metaphysics of what reality is. What I was so excited, like I, people think it's weird that I read the Bible nine or ten hours a day when I first, it's because all of a sudden I knew I'm reading something that explains everything that's happening behind people's faces. This is what the world has longed to know. All of a sudden, I'm going from darkness to light, from not knowing anything to knowing everything important. Theoria versus praxis is the structure. You know, so now... The second half of Paul's epistles are not just ethics, but they're how to walk in the power of his resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit and to live a life that's supernatural. So many of us just live an ordinary life. A Christian should not be subject to lots of the same things. Like if you're struggling with shame issues, self-condemnation issues, motivation issues, uh, you know, all these kind of things, you need to have an encounter with the gospel that really changes everything. Flip over, takeaway three. Always keep our faith, walk, and gospel ministry. I wonder if we should do this two Sundays because I really want to talk about the Holy Spirit. Always keep our faith, walk, and gospel ministry relational in Christ Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit. Who's supposed to teach next Sunday at 10.30? John Gray again. Can I take it again? Let, let's just uh, do this for Catherine for two Sundays because I, don't, I want her to share her testimony of getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And believe me, there are Christians not baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there are Christians who are baptized in the Holy Spirit who aren't necessarily living a life of always being filled with the Spirit and living by the power of the Spirit. And until your daily reality is living by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're missing the good news.
You have an anger management problem? God is the answer to that if you, if you encounter him rightly. Do you have anxiety, worry? You know, I, I really want to get into, uh, uh, in when we do next week, I want to get into the whole idea of overcoming a wounded spirit. I don't want to pick on anybody, but I, th- listen, there's at least four or five people that I know in our church that are kind of stuck. And when you talk to them, they have all kind of negative things to say about themselves. Don't do that. Don't sin against God that way. Believe what God says about you. When you become a Christian, you get a whole new identity. Part of Romans 6, the whole water baptism thing, is this. When the devil comes knocking on your door and tries to lay shame and guilt, and you just have anger management issues, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, and that... You know what? Just tell them, John Luke doesn't live here anymore. I can remember in my early Christian years saying to demonic spirits over and over again, Greg Weiss doesn't live here anymore. There was a pond outside a church in Mansfield, Ohio that our friend Ray Nethery started. And I was buried in that pond in May of 1975 on the 23rd or 4th or something like that. And that old cadaver is still there. And, you know, that's like why when in Colossians, when Paul switches from the theoria side, the theology, the milk, to the bones, meat, and practical side, he, Colossians 3 says, If then you have been buried with Christ and raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And then he tells us, Uh, Two chapters of things to live that are totally impossible. As if that's, or because you know what? That is the ordinary reality for a Christian. People should, I, I love going back to one of my high school reunions. And people going like, what the heck happened to that guy? You know, I was voted least likely to succeed. I was voted most radical. You know, I was voted most likely to end up in jail. They had all these categories like that your senior year. All the negative ones I won. (laughs) But I didn't know Jesus was going to come knocking at my door. I didn't invite him. He invited himself. And he convinced me that there was no other reality, you know, than him. That's it. So I think we're actually going to continue this next week because, you know, it's already time for the kids to get up here and all this. But we did cover takeaway number one a little and takeaway number two a a little more. On takeaway one, don't you dare not take this outline home. I get so sick of the fact that we, that there's like 20 people in our church that spend hundreds of hours making resources for us that people don't use. If you don't take these home and have notebooks or file drawers that have them, shame on you. Did you hear me? If you do not take these homes and have a file drawer for them or a notebook or whatever, I can remember 
doing that my first few years as a Christian. Of course, we didn't have someone give us the outline. I had to take notes myself. But I, two or three or four times a year, I would spend two or three hours going through the notes from all the teachings in our church. Because we had wonderful teachers who spent hours and hours. This church is blessed. We have like seven men who can teach the, the things of God well. And they're growing in their abilities all the time. And we just leave them in the pews. Don't do that. I, I, one of the things I always appreciated about Sidney when he first came into the church, the city would have like a big notebook of all the teachings. And uh, eventually, I would encourage you, you were being what? You know, so I don't, you don't have to carry them around all the time, but store them and re-access them. And I'm telling you, on the uh, takeaway number one, Read all the verses I've listed there. If you don't do that this week, you're sinning against God. And me. And on Vash and Josiah for their work in printing them and all the people who set up the printers and all that. Like, people did this so you could have it. Then, uh, look up some other verses that correspond to these. I didn't list all the verses about the power of the word of God. Is not his word like a fire, and like the hammer that breaketh the rock, that breaketh the rock into pieces? I don't sing well, but I don't know if, remember who wrote that one. Do you know who? Do you know that piece of music? It's from. Uh, it's from the Messiah. Is it okay? So, you know what? The word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe. Atom bombs are not quite in the league of the word of God. He spoke in the, you know what? You know, only in the last high 30, 40 years have scientists began to, to understand something that Genesis 1 makes quite clear. The universe is still expanding. Because God said, let there be light. He didn't say, let there be a little light. He didn't say, let there be so much light, this much, no more, we four. He said, let there be light, which his word is present. I wish I knew all my Greek verb tests. You know, it's presently active, aorist, whatever, all that stuff. It, it, he, he said, let there be light, 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 light. There may be a time somewhere in eternity that God says, that's enough light. And the universe may stop expanding. But only if God says so. But until then, there's going to be more galaxies, more solar systems, more planets, and it's continuing on in until he says that's enough. And your Bible told you that 4,000 years ago. Well, 3,000. Four thousand. So I'm glad the scientists are catching up. So anyway, next week we'll deal with this. Like, don't, don't, don't come to this communion table every week. Don't be part of our church. Don't read your Bible without letting it transform you.
don't be the same old, same old person you were last year or last week. You know, one of the, one of the great things about community, some people don't change because nobody can speak into their life and confront them. You, I, you meet people who, like, you can tell, like, they kind of think they know, they had these experiences with God, they know, and, and you're not going to teach them anything. Then you meet people who are just really teachable. And I, I, one of the mysteries of the gospel, I have seen some of the most screwed up, messed up people become really whole, really together, really knowledgeable, really productive, very good at relationships, uh, and very happy, contented, productive, useful people. And I have seen people who don't do that. And it all gets down to some basic things about the tools of grace and how to, how to relate to them and let them into your life. And there's, there's no reason as a Christian not to become a superman. That's actually what you, if you live like a normal person, and someone goes, I could live like that guy does. You haven't got the gospel yet. You should be like my friend Larry Trimbach, but God bless his soul. Uh, love, he always says, you are A-B normal. <laughs> you know, like, you're A-B normal. <laughs> you know, Paul actually confronts the Corinthians because they're walking like mere men. Don't walk like a mere man. And really, if your mouth is full of negative confessions about yourself, shut up. Don't just be the mouthpiece for demonic spirits trying to destroy you. You know, if, if you have the same old, same old problems that you had when you started as a Christian, get some help by someone, you know, like... Give me permission to really say what's on my mind <laughs> if, if you're bold enough. Because, you know, some, some of us just, you know, I'll share one last verse and then I'll stop. 